In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, this morning we begin a little bit of a twist or a turn, you might say, in the book of Daniel. Making it a little more difficult, uh, but a little more meaningful at the same time. So we ask your blessing and effort um, for all of us then to better understand what it is that you are trying to tell us through Holy Scripture. So open our minds and our hearts and let us hear what you want us to hear. So we thank you for this time together and we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. I believe that when you started to read uh, chapters 7 and 8, you found it quite a bit different than uh, the previous chapters. And that is because uh, we're getting into what is called apocalyptic language or apocalyptic literature. And if my tongue gets a little twisted uh, in saying that word, I think you can understand even by looking at how it's spelled. Uh, it's a little bit strange. Apocalyptic literature came into being about uh, the second century when this book was written, uh, and it was intended to be sort of uh, a disguised way of saying certain things. Because remember that written materials, letters, books, stories of any kind, were only shared among the elite because they were the only ones that could read. Uh, the elite, the powerful, the political, etc. Uh, and therefore, because of the circumstances, uh, political circumstances, uh, the writers had to be very careful. And so they devised this way of uh, speaking that comes primarily from the book of Ezekiel. All right? Right here, the other one that's in this. And that's why these two are together. All right? Because they're very much alike. Apocalyptic language then existed for about 400 years from somewhere around the 2nd century B.C. to the end of the 2nd century A.D. You find a lot of that same kind of uh, writings, and we'll go over some of it from the book of Revelation. You'll also find a little bit of it in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 24 and 25. Excuse me, I'm going to... I've got the urge to sneeze, pardon me, but I just hope... It won't come when you want it to, you know, unfortunately. Hmm. Luckily, I can cut that out of the recording here, so. Modern uh, conveniences are, are wonderful. Okay. All the bad jokes and everything can be just eliminated. From. Anyways. Um. You find some of this uh, idea of apocalyptic language in the Gospel of Matthew. And I would suggest that we turn to that 
so that you can get an idea of even Jesus using uh, some of that type of language. Not Chapter 24 and 25, it says, I, I said here, I'm trying to hold my finger in another bookmark. It's all right. It's all right. Hmm. In fact, um, Uh, even the big, just beginning, uh, the beginning of chapter 24, it says, Jesus left the temple precincts and his disciples came up and pointed out to him the buildings in the temple area and he come, his comment was, do you see all of these buildings? I assure you, uh, not one stone will be left on another. It will be torn down. And while he was seated on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came up to him privately and said, Tell us, when will this occur? And what will the sign of your coming and the end of the world? In reply, Jesus said to them, Be on guard. Let no one mislead you. Many will come attempting to impersonate me. I am the Messiah, they will claim, and they will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Do not be alarmed. Such things are bound to happen. But that is not yet the end. Nation will rise against nation and one kingdom against another. And there will be famine and pestilence and earthquakes and many places. These are the early stages of the birth pangs. And they will hand you over to torture and kill you. Indeed, you will be hated by all nations on my account. Many will falter then, betraying and hating one another. False prophets will rise in great numbers to mislead many. Because of the increase of evil, the love of most will grow cold. The man who holds out to the end, however, is the one who will see salvation. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a witness to all the nations. Only after that will the end come. And then it goes on and on, and you can read this kind of uh, for yourself, because it's a little long. But chapters 24 and 25 uh, are often referred to as the little apocalypse. But you find a great deal of this kind of language uh, also, in, as I said, in the uh, writings of, of the prophet uh, Ezekiel and in Malachi, uh, less so in Malachi, uh, but nevertheless, and here and there in a few other places, it was common to be used, but then by the end of the second century, or more into the third century, uh, after peace was declared by Constantine in 313 A.D., uh, it sort of died out because there wasn't a great need for it. From time to time, other people have used it. The word itself, 
does not mean gloom and doom as so many people think. It is, it is a Greek word meaning reveal or, uh, yeah, that's, that's the best word, I guess, that in translation that we could, to reveal, to reveal something from within the words themselves, all right? Uh, that's what it means. And when we get to the book of Revelation at the end of your Bible, it really means to reveal a different way of looking at Jesus Christ. That's all it means. It does not mean gloom and doom. That came from a misinterpretation of what the book of Revelation was all about. Because it talks about uh, casting Satan into hell and oh, uh, a lot of things being uh, thrown into the fiery furnace and the, all of that. Uh, those are all symbolic words that really mean many other things. We're not going to get into the book of Revelation, but I wanted you to know that uh, <coughs> you might say that that's the epitome of apocalyptic language, uh, the book of Revelation in itself. But it's a beautiful book, and it has uh, as its main purpose uh, for the people during the persecution times of the first and second centuries its intent was just as the book of Daniel to give the people hope that this will not last forever. And if you hold out and are faithful to God and his ways of doing things and the teachings of the church, then you will have nothing to fear. And after chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, it is all about uh the hereafter, heaven and so forth. Not a real unique description, uh, but something to sort of hang on to. Okay. Alright. Any questions before we begin, we get into the depths of this? Thank you. Before we get into, uh, the Pick of uh, chapter 7. Any questions? That's because you probably don't know what questions to ask, right? All right. Is it getting too warm in here for you? Okay. All right. We could open the door, you know. All right. Now, again, this is quite a change from chapters 1 through 6. No doubt it was written by someone else other than the same authors who wrote 1 through 6, because the language is entirely different. Uh, the objective is pretty much the same, though. Hold out uh, and keep faith uh, with God, and you have nothing to worry about. Okay. Um, when I say you have nothing to worry about, even though many, many people were killed during this period of time, or, or slaughtered, I might say, the idea of earthly death is considered somewhat unimportant to God. 
All right, because we're all going to die at some point in time. Uh, the idea is don't worry about how and when because God is in charge. <coughs> and many people say, well, you know, if God was as loving as everyone says he is, why is there so much uh, death pictured in the Bible? Thank you. Um, and I guess that's a good uh, question. But when you think about it, if you spread the gruesome scenes of death that's in particularly the Old Testament over a period of 2,000 years, there was a lot of good times in between. Death was not nearly as prevalent during that whole period of 2,000 years from the time of Abraham to the time of Christ, as one might think. It's just that death uh, and wars were so important to both sides, important to God as well as important to the Jewish people for entirely different reasons. Excuse me. Um, <coughs> so we cannot look at physical death and compare it to spiritual death and that is what generally the New Testament is talking about more spiritual death and it isn't always clearly defined as to what is meant but, for example, let, let's take the statement that Jesus makes when the rich man, let me think, i got to forget the exact quotation, uh, but there is a statement in one of the Gospels that says, let the dead bury the dead. You all, I'm sure you're all familiar with that. And it throws a lot of people, you know. What they're talking about in this case is this is people, God, or Jesus is asking certain people to follow him. And one says, well, I just got married and I have a wife now and I, I can't leave her. And another one says, well, I just bought a, a farm and I've got to go out and try it. And then a third person says, um, uh, I've got to bury my father first. And what he's really saying, and Jesus says, well, let let the dead bury the dead. All right. What he's really talking about is those people who have already experienced spiritual death because they have rejected God. And therefore, they are spiritually dead. Let them bury the physical dead because they're not going to gain anything. All right. But you've got to be very careful that you understand what or which one they're talking about, physical death or spiritual death. And in most cases, the New Testament will talk about spiritual death. But it isn't always clearly defined. So you have to be careful on that. All right? So <clears throat> what we want to talk about now is the change in the language of chapter 7. Welcome, Father. We appreciate your coming in. I wished I had an extra book for you, but unfortunately I don't.
All right. The vision of the four beasts. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream as he lay in bed. Now, this is, you know, sort of the opposite, your mother might say, from uh, the previous chapters where it was always the king that had the dream, all right? Uh, Now it's Daniel has his dream. Has a dream as he lay in bed and was terrified by the visions of his in his mind. Then he wrote down the dream. The account began. In the vision I saw during the night, suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea, from which emerged four immense beasts, each different from the others. The first was like a lion with eagle's wings. While I watched, the wings were plucked. It was raised from the ground to stand on two feet like a man and given a human mind. What one was that? Anyone identify with that? Mm -hmm. Babylon, right. The second was like a bear. It was raised up on one side and among the teeth. uh, In its mouth were three tusks. It was given the order, up, devour much flesh. All right. Anyone recognize that? You know, it's like flipping a, a button on the screen to the, your, on your computer. All right. Can you all read that? So what it's doing here is identifying the four kingdoms, just like it did in chapters 2 and 4, where it identified the statue and the dream. All right. Four kingdoms, Babylon, Medes, Persians, and the Greeks. Now, in the Gospel of John, in the New Testament, there's the story of the woman at the well. You're all familiar with the story of the woman at the well, are you not? All right. And Jesus, in conversation with her, says, why don't you go and get your husband and come back? And she says, I'm sorry to tell you, but I don't have a husband. And he says, that's right. He said, because you have had five husbands, and the person that you are dealing with now, or living with now, is not your husband. Of course, you can take that in two different ways, both physical and face value of what he's saying. But in John's gospel, you have also got to look at the spiritual meaning of that. And what he's really doing is he's talking about and to Israel in general. And he's saying, your five husbands were Babylon, Medes, Persians, Greeks, and Romans. Or You could go back and say Egypt, Babylon, Medes, Persians, and Greeks. That's the five. And the one you are now dealing with or consorting with is the Romans. 
Okay. So you can look at it in both ways. So it's interesting, John's gospel can be looked at both in the physical sense, face value, but also in the spiritual sense. Excuse me, I'm going to turn that heat down. It's a little too much for me. Save the church a little money. Yeah. All right. Now, from chapter 2, we get these comparisons. All right. In the statue, gold, silver, bronze, iron. The Greeks being iron, iron and clay, mixed with clay. And that's where you get the ten horns, remember, from the toes of the statue. All right. In chapter 7, we're getting comparisons. Lion, bear, leopard, and beast with ten horns. Again, the ten horns are the same as the ten toes or the uh, comparison over here. It's also comparing with north, south, east, and west. You have the, <coughs> you have the same kind of imagery in... The book of Revelation, you have the four beasts, but the four beasts in Revelation are not these, they're the same, same animals, you might say, except down here, this is the man, uh, or the beast that looks like a man, but they represent the four corners of the earth or the four pillars of creation, that's in Revelation, all right? You have, it's the same imagery, but different meaning. North, east, south, and west is also the same in Revelation. All right, after this, I'm down to verse 6. After this, I looked and saw another beast, like a leopard. On its back were four wings, like those of a bird. It had four heads. To this beast, dominion was given. After this, in the vision of the night, I saw the fourth beast, different from all the others, terrifying, horrible, and of extraordinary strength. It had great iron teeth with which it devoured and crushed, and what was left it trampled with its feet. I was considering the ten horns it had, when suddenly another little horn sprang out of their midst. Now the ten horns represented what? Hmm? Yeah, the, the division of the Greek Empire into the four different kingdoms, all right? Again, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Since I was considering the ten horns it had, when suddenly... A little horn sprang out of their midst, and the little horn is who? Antiochus the fourth, yes. And he did away with three of his counterparts, you might say, in order to gain power over the greater part of the Mideast. 
This horn had eyes like a man and a mouth that spoke arrogantly. And as I watched, thrones were set up, and the Ancient One took his throne. His clothing was snow bright, and the hair on his head as white as wool. His throne was flames of fire and wheels of burning fire. If you turn to, uh, we won't go into it, but into Ezekiel, you'll see almost the same identical words describing uh, Ezekiel's vision of heaven. All right? Almost the same identical words. And in Revelation, you have kind of the same thing again. What the authors are trying to do here is to get you to think about God always being in charge. Though it may not appear so at the time, if you're involved in one of these tumultuous events, uh, God is still in charge, and it's something that we must always keep in mind. His throne was flames of fire with wheels of burning fire. A surging stream of fire flowed out from where he sat. Thousands upon thousands were ministering to him, and myriads upon myriads attended him. I'm going to show you how in Revelation it is very much the same. Chapter 5. In the night, I'm sorry, in the right hand of one who sat on the throne, I saw a scroll. It had writing on both sides and was sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a mighty angel who proclaimed in a loud voice, Who was worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could be found to open the scroll or examine its contents. I wept bitterly, the author being John the seer. I wept bitterly because no one could be found worthy to open or examine the scroll. One of the elders said to me, Do not weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has won the right by his victory to open the scroll with the seven seals. Now, anyone know who the lion of Judah is? You know who the root of David is? Christ himself, yes, in both cases, all right, yeah. Then between the throne with, between the throne with the four living creatures, that's the ones that I mentioned before, the four living creatures, all right, from this side here. I saw a lamb standing, a lamb that had been slain. He had seven horns and seven eyes. Now, don't think of that visually. The seven horns is complete power. All right, seven, remember, is a complete word, one of the Jewish sacred words. So horns is always a symbol of power. Seven eyes, meaning that he can see all things. People try to envision a, an animal, you know, with seven arms and seven eyes, and it gets pretty gross. All right, but that's not what it means. We're talking here of symbols. Uh, the Book of Revelations is filled with symbols. Okay. 
Uh, every time I look up and I lose my place. Uh, these eyes were, are, are the seven spirits of God sent to all parts of the world. In other words, Jesus can see all things uh, at all times as he wishes. The Lamb came and received the scroll from the right hand of the one who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Along with their harps, the elders were holding vessels of gold filled with aromatic spices with which the prayers of God's holy people. This is the hymn that they sang. Worthy are you to receive the scroll and break open its seals, for you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God men of every race and tongue, of every people and nation. You made of them a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You see, the wording here is so much like the wording of David, or Daniel, rather. Okay, And that is kind of the whole idea of apocalyptic language. It's a full of symbolisms, and you have to kind of understand those symbolisms to really understand what he's saying. And that's why I think Revelation is very difficult, but at the same time very interesting and challenging. All right, I don't want to spend too much time on this because we're supposed to be studying then. Now, we're getting to an interesting part here that I want to spend a little time on. It says, the court was convened and the books were open. What books? Anyone realize or understand what the books are? Hmm? No, no. This is the books of life. Okay? The books of life. In other words, those people who have or will have survived the trial and are considered, therefore, to be worthy of entering salvation. The court was convened and the books were opened. I watched from the first uh, of the arrogant words which the horn spoke until the beast was slain and its body thrown into the fire to be burnt up. The other beast which also lost their dominion, or granted a prolongation of life. The other beast, in other words, the, the beast that just got put away there, are these, the one referencing the Greeks, all right? The other beast, the three, three others, because they lasted a little bit uh, longer in time. Okay. The other beasts, which also lost their dominion, were granted a prolongation of life for a time and a season. As the visions during the night continued, I saw one like a son of man coming on the clouds, and when he reached the ancient one, was presented before him. He received dominion, glory, and kingship. Nations and people of every language served him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not be taken away, 
and his kingship shall not be destroyed. Would you circle all of that? All right. Verse 13 through 14. Because that is where Jesus gets the phrase and calls himself or refers to himself as the Son of Man. All right. Who else could fulfill that description? If you go through and say, one like a Son of Man coming on the clouds, and when he reached the Ancient One, referring to the Father, was presented before him. And he received dominion, glory, and kingship. Nations and people of every um, language serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not be taken away. His kingship shall not be destroyed. As I said, who else but Christ could fulfill that prophecy? No one. No one. And that is why Jesus refers to himself. Now, the people of his time, the educated people who knew the Bible or the Hebrew scriptures should have understood where that came from, (coughs) excuse me, and what it meant. Unfortunately, they refused to accept that. Nevertheless, Jesus never calls himself the Son of God. He's asked by Pilate if he is the Son of God, and he refers to yes. But he never calls himself all through his uh, public life of preaching and teaching. Never calls himself the Son of God. He wants people to refer back to this part right here. Anybody have a problem with that? You, you all sort of get the idea. You see, if he called himself the son of God, they'd say, hmm, so what? Every firstborn male child in the Jewish family could really call himself the son of God because that was the culture. Every firstborn was dedicated. And therefore, they would say, you know, the son of God, and usually son with a small s. Okay. Uh when Jesus refers to himself, and when you see it, it written in uh, the New Testament, it's always capitalized. The word son is always capitalized. Okay. Uh, because that's a, a, a unique reference. Unique because it refers back to the book of Daniel. All right. Not just the words, but the following description. Okay. That whole section, verse 13 and 14. I, Daniel, found my spirit anguished within its sheath of flesh, and I was terrified by the visions of my mind. I, and if you read, if you read Revelation, the writer, John, um, is also terrified by all of the visions, uh, particularly in chapter 1. And therefore, Jesus is standing in, uh, before him and says, you know, get up, uh, don't be afraid, etc., etc. Uh, that's a very frequent expression in here, signifying uh, humility more than anything, all right, by the writer. 
humility because he is now being given a vision of something that is far, far greater than he or anything else. And it is a humbling experience. I, Daniel, found my spirit anguished within a sheath of flesh. I was terrified by the visions of my mind. I approached one of those present and asked him what all this meant in truth. In answer, he made known to me the meaning of the things. These four great beasts stand for four kingdoms which shall rise, which shall arise on the earth. But the holy ones of the Most High shall receive the kingship to possess it forever. And that, of course, is in reference to heaven, if you hold out and are faithful. And, of course, that's what this whole book is about, is faith and honor, glory, etc., to God alone. But I wish to make certain about the fourth beast, so very terrible and different from the others, devouring and crushing it with its iron teeth and bronze claws and trampling it with its feet what was left. About the ten horns on its head and the other one that sprang up before which three horns fell. About the horn which the, with the eyes and the mouth that spoke arrogantly, which appeared greater than its fellows. For as I watched, the horn made war against the holy ones and was victorious. You see, he's talking about Antiochus IV, and he's talking about his people at that time. All right? For as I watched, the horn made war against the holy ones and was victorious. That is, until the ancient one arrived. Judgment was pronounced in favor of the Holy Ones of the Most High. Now, the ancient one is God himself, obviously. All right? And what he's talking about is really Judah, or Judaism, I should say, will prevail and destroy. It will be God through Judaism and the Maccabees that will destroy these people. Okay? That is the conquerors. Um, this whole idea of the ten heads and so forth, in the book of Revelation you have a similar beast. All right, The red dragon it's called, and he has seven heads also. But the meaning there is the whole Herodian dynasty. There were seven Herods. All right, Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Herod, uh, uh, we had three brothers. Two, he had two brothers, I should say. And then there were two grand, three grandchildren, right? And they inherited the whole idea. But they were always puppets of Rome, okay? They were never really aligned with their own people. And unfortunately, <coughs> Uh, their demise, or fortunately, I should say, rather than unfortunately, their demise was really in the same way. They were put down uh, by the Romans, who they had manipulated in a way to uh, 
affect the crucifixion of Christ, but in the long run, it was Rome who destroyed Jerusalem uh, and the and Judaism as well as the temple. The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. This one here. Different from all the others. And it shall devour the whole earth and beat it down and crush it. The ten horns shall be ten kings rising out of that kingdom. And that's of course when Alexander the Great died in 323, I think it was, B.C. Uh, it was divided into uh, ten districts, you might say. And these were not kings, but they kind of made themselves so. Okay. The ten horns shall be ten kings rising out of that kingdom, and another shall rise up after them, different from those before, who shall lay low three kings, and that's Antiochus, he shall speak against the Most High and oppress the Holy Ones of the Most High, thinking to change the feast days and the laws. Remember, in chapter 1 and 2, that's exactly what he was trying to do. They shall be handed over to him for a year, two years, and a half year. And this is kind of interesting. This is two and a half years. All right? Um and this is a prophecy now that has been set up in the second century B.C. But if you go to I didn't mean that for a quick disappearing act. If, if you jump forward to the conquest of Israel by the Romans in the first century A.D. And you go from June of the year 66 A.D., of course, to December of the year 70 A.D. when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. What, what does that look like? Three and a half years. Now that's coincidental as far as the writer is concerned, but it came out to be interestingly accurate. But that's not what he's talking about here in the book of Daniel. So, okay. <coughs> he's, <coughs> excuse me, he's predicting how long Antiochus IV will continue his rule. And that was also rather close. Not quite, but very close. Um, let's see, going down to verse 26. But then the court is convened and his power is taken away by final and absolute destruction. Then the king, then the kingship and dominion and majesty of the kingdom under the heavens shall be given to the holy people of the Most High, that is Judaism, whose kingdom shall be everlasting and all dominion shall serve and obey him. 
And that pretty much uh, is concluded by the Maccabees and the rouster of Antiochus, who then fled back to Persia and died there, okay, shortly after. The report concluded, I, Daniel, was greatly terrified by my thoughts and my face blanched, but I kept the matter to myself. And this is somewhat common in apocalyptic language. Uh, He says he kept the matter to himself. But if you think about it, he's writing this in a book that is being published and submitted to, you know, all kinds of people. All right. Uh, you have the same wording in the book of Revelation. Right? But in that case, the writer is told to keep it quiet until after it happens. The same way that Jesus uh, told many of the recipients of his miracles, and including uh, Peter, James, and John at the Transfiguration, to keep it quiet. But that was for an entirely different reason. He didn't want too many people to accept him on the basis of uh, the miracles. He wanted people to accept him on the basis of faith. Not what could be done for them uh, physically, but what could be done for them spiritually. That was far more important. The other reason, less important, but nevertheless, it made it much more difficult for him to get around because as the uh, fame of his preaching, teaching, and miracles spread, uh, naturally more people showed up uh, to see what they could see or find out what they could find out from this miracle worker, and he didn't want that. Any questions? You all got that down pat, right? Yeah, you have a good point there, Mary. Mary just brought up the fact that, uh, yes, many people, uh, L. Ron Hubbard for one, um, the Left Behind series for another, um, you have, have taken the whole idea of the gloom and doom part, uh, which is, of course, as I said before, not really accurate, uh, and have, uh, you might say capitalized on it by uh, Hollywood and, and the publishing business. Uh, <clears throat> none of those have any basis of truth. Absolutely none. Uh, Jesus himself tells us that um, it is not for us to know. In fact, he even says that he didn't know when the end of the world would be that there would be wars and rumors of wars and all kinds of other phenomena, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the end. And I think in the last 2,000 years for the, from the time of Christ until today, 
we've had virtually all of those happen, one way or the other, uh, wars, earthquakes, uh, pestilence, famine, whatever, uh, and still we're here. All right. The other, the other thing that you should look about is what could you do to uh, prevent the end of the world? What, you know, <laughs> what could you, what could you do to uh, soften its blow? Or what could you do to, to make it any different? Nothing. So why bother worrying about it? What you need to worry about is your life and your relationship with God through Christ and how it is working out. That's all you need to worry about. You can't do a darn thing about the end of the world, so why bother? So, you know, Mary's point is well taken. A lot of people have capitalized on it because people refuse to look at their own life. They refuse really to take responsibility for their relationship with God and how it is working out. And yet, they want to capitalize on the fear of others. uh, And that's how the Left Behind series uh, was developed. I've read some of it. I've seen some of it uh, dramatized, you might say, through Hollywood. And you got to be very, very careful about Hollywood movies, even though they uh, are reported to present the truth. You got to really be very careful about that. I think that the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ, even though he took a few liberties here and there, I think was extremely well done. Uh, I particularly like the way he depicted uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, very dignified, uh, very consoling, uh, but she didn't get in the way. It was not a major role uh, in Hollywood uh, ways of thinking, uh, but it was important and it could not have been left out. Uh, but even there, like I said, he took a few liberties uh, that are not really in the Bible, but I think they fitted, they fit rather well. But be careful, because most of those uh, Hollywood or television depictions of biblical scenes leave you hanging. They ask, they do not answer questions. They actually create more questions than uh, they're aware. Yes, Fiona? Yes. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting observation, yes. Did you all get that? Uh-huh, yes. Even though he could interpret other people's dreams, uh, he couldn't really understand uh, his own and was extremely frightened by them. Yes, a very good point. I think that really kind of uh, supports the idea that these uh, chapter 7 through 12 
were written by somebody else. Right. And the whole idea is a little different. Uh, even the author says, uh, or one of the authors, as you know, I'm, I rely more heavily on this book than this one. Um, not that there's anything different, but this author goes into much more detail. Um, says that chapters 7 through 12 were written much later, uh, towards the end of uh, the reign of Antiochus IV. Yeah. All right. Any other questions? We want to get into chapter eight because it has uh, similar symbols. Yes, Jerry. You probably told us this someone along the line that the best prophetic biblical stories that are coming with Christ will be Daniel. No. Uh, I would say the Jerry's question is the most reliable source of predictions of the coming of Christ. Would that be the book of Daniel? I'd say no, it would be the Gospels themselves. Okay, And it's still very vague. We have no way of knowing. And that's sort of deliberate. Jesus doesn't want us to know. Uh, when you get into say, uh, the book of Thess- uh, the letter to the Thessalonians, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, uh, the people of Thessalonica at the early stages, as well as many Jews who turned to Christianity in the first century, thought that the second coming of Christ was going to be relatively soon in their lifetime. And so, uh, many of them just stop. Why should we build homes? Why should we try to uh, do something on uh, long-range planning when it's all going to end? And Paul writes them and says, do not stop. Continue on. Because you know, as Christ said, you know not the day or the hour. And we don't really have, in any of the writings, to my knowledge, uh, a good prediction of when the end will be. And I think that's by God's plan or choice. Yes. Yeah. Uh, because, as I said earlier, it's not up for us, and why should we worry about it? Our, the end of the world for us is when we die. And that's the only time you can do something about it is beforehand. And so, don't wait till the end because you just never know. Unfortunately, this past week I had uh, a nephew who died um, rather unexpectedly. Uh, he wasn't able to plan ahead, and he left a rather unfortunate uh, series of circumstances behind. And that was because he just never thought about it, because he was only 58 years old. Um, and it's unfortunate, you know, when people die young. You don't expect that. And therefore, every day counts as if it is your last or should. Never let a day go by with things out there hanging. Things that could and should have been settled and aren't. It's important that we 
really tend to that. Okay. Let's go on, chapter 8. After this first vision, I, Daniel, had another. Here we go again. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, in my vision, I saw myself in the fortress of Susa, in the province of Elam. I was beside the river Eulai. Uh, that's the way I'm going to pronounce it, whether that's right or not, I don't know. Uh, I looked up and saw standing by the river a ram with two great horns, the one larger and newer than the other. I saw the ram butting toward the west, north and south. No beast could withstand it or be rescued from its power. It did what it pleased and became very powerful. In Ezekiel, you have a, a very similar uh, vision, you might say, of water pouring out of the temple, uh, where it starts as a trickle and eventually gets to be a, a raging river. Okay. As I was reflecting, a he-goat with a prominent horn on its forehead suddenly came from the west across the whole earth without touching the ground. It approached the two-horned ram I had seen standing by the river and rushed toward it with savage force. I saw it attack the ram with furious blows when they met and break both its horns. It threw the ram, which had not the force to withstand it, to the ground and trampled upon it, and no one could rescue it from its power. The he-goat became very powerful, but at the height of its power, the great horn was shattered, and its place came up. And in its place came up four others, facing the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which kept growing toward the south, the east, and the glorious country. <clears throat> its power extended to the host of heaven, so that it cast down to earth some of the hosts and some of the stars, and trampled on them. It boasted even against the prince of the host from which it removed the daily sacrifice and whose sanctuary it cast down as well as the host as well as the host. While sin replaced the daily sacrifice it cast truth to the ground and was succeeding in its undertaking. Uh, does this all sound kind of familiar in a way? It's sort of a repeat in slightly different form of all of this going on. All right. The four horns being the four empires. All right. And the little horn, etc., being Antiochus the fourth. And here we have northeast, south, and west. All of this is really uh, a repeat with slightly different imagery and symbolisms uh, of the whole idea here presented. Okay. 
the he-goat um, became very powerful. But at the height of its power, the great horn was shattered, and its place came up, and in its place came up four others, facing the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn which kept growing toward the south, etc. And we have read that already. Uh, dropping down, it says, I heard a holy one speaking, and another said to which, whichever one it was that spoke, How long shall the events of this vision last concerning the daily sacrifice, the desolating sin which is placed there, the sanctuary and the trampled host? This refers to the fact that Antiochus IV uh, took out all of the gold and silver vessels of the temple, removed all of its spiritual imagery, and in a place sacrificed uh, swine or pigs, uh, because that was the most forbidden of uh, animals or, or meat for the Jewish people, uh, brought in prostitutes and really, uh, you know, made sort of uh, a circus. In fact, Actually, a gymnasium was set up, and it was an abomination because uh, in Greek culture, in Hellenistic culture, uh, the gymnasiums were, of course, only for men, and the men wore no clothing whatsoever uh, in their pursuit of the sports. And, of course, some of the Jewish men uh, sort of put that as... Uh, pretty nice thing, but because they were circumcised and they could be identified uh, when compared to the other men, um, they went as far as mutilating their own bodies in order to hide the circumcision and that kind of thing. So it went, really went uh, way too far, okay? How long shall the events of this vision last concerning the daily sacrifice, that is, the Jewish uh, daily offering to God, okay. the desolating sin which is placed there, and that's, of course that's the desolation uh, or abomination of desolation as mentioned both in Ezekiel and in the book of Revelation in reference to the holy of holies of the temple. He answered him, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, while the sanctuary shall be purified. And that, of course, happened uh, when uh, the Maccabees uh, finally got rid of the Seleucid Greeks. While I, Daniel, sought the meaning of the vision I had seen, a man-like figure stood before me. And on the Uli, I heard a human voice that cried out, Gabriel, explain the vision to this man. And when he came near where I was standing, I fell prostrate in terror. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the end of time. As he spoke to me, I fell forward in a faint. He touched me and made me stand up. If you read, the first chapter of the book of Revelation, you have almost the same identical wor words. I won't go into it, but when you have time, read just the first book 
uh, first chapter rather of the book of Revelation. Almost identical uh, words used there. And of course, these are all symbolic words. Um, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the end of time, not, not the end of the world. Okay? The end of the time that the Seleucid kings, Antiochus IV and his tribe, said, will be in control. As he spoke to me, I fell forward in a faint, and he touched me and made me stand up. I will show you, he said, what is to happen later in the period of wrath. For at the appointed time, there will be an end. The two-horned ram you saw represents the kings of the Medes and the Persians. The he-goat is the king of the Greeks. The great horn on its forehead is the first king who is whom? Alexander the Great. Yes. The four that rose in its place when it was broken are four kingdoms that will issue from this nation but without its strength. After their reign, when sinners have reached their measure, there shall arise a king impudent and skilled in intrigue. He shall be strong and powerful, bring about fearful ruin and succeed in his undertaking. He shall destroy powerful peoples. His cunning shall be against the holy ones. His treacherous conduct shall succeed. He shall be proud of heart and destroy many by his stealth. Didn't we read that in, I believe it was chapter 6, how he was so proud of his accomplishments? Okay. Uh, but when he rises against the prince of princes, he shall be broken without a hand being raised. That's right. The prince of princes is not Christ in this case. It is Judaism rising up against them. The vision of the evenings and the mornings is true, as spoken. Do you, however, keep this vision undisclosed because the days are to be many? I, Daniel, was weak and ill for some days. And then I arose and took care of the king's affairs. But I was appalled at the vision which I could not understand. There again, Fiona, you can't understand that one either. Yeah. Yes. Yes. In in some ways that it's strange, but um, I think it's more uh, intrigue then you know if he says I understand it well we'd say fine what else is new you know but in this case it isn't so it leaves us wondering okay and of course that's what the story is really about don't just put it aside now because you understand it all it's ponder what it's like the parables that Christ uh, used in many cases Parables are a story that contain a kernel of truth within them, and the objective here is to spend some time thinking about what that kernel of truth is and how it applies. And that's what these stories are about. 
two different offers. Well, not exactly. The objective is the same. It is the method and how they get there or present it. Yeah. Yeah. Any other questions? Well, Eleanor's asking a question that I think I can't answer, uh, partly because we don't know who the author is, you see, and the answer is really the history that was going on at the time. See, the people that were living in that period of time understood these, they could read between the lines, yes. That's the whole objective of apocalyptic language, is they understood not only from what was going on around them, but from the book of Ezekiel and others that came before them. Remember, even though it's talking about uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and so forth, which came out of the 6th century, that's when Ezekiel was living at that time. See, Ezekiel was in Babylon during the real Babylon, Babylonian exile. Okay. But this event, Daniel, takes place in the 2nd century. But the author couldn't say that because he wouldn't last very long. But as far as interpreting it, those people really understood what was being said here. And it's people who followed later. All they had to do is look at uh, the book of Maccabees and compare them and see that what was being said in Daniel really happened in Maccabees. Because Maccabees is... uh, Historical, yes. Not hysterical, but historical. Yeah. Okay. Yes? Well, yes. Yes, yes. The comment here is the angel Gabriel being mentioned. Uh, of course, the angels had, you know, no time limitations of any kind. Um, but this is the first mention of Gabriel in the Bible. Yes, yes. And, of course, it is the same one. Angels uh, were used frequently as messengers to bring messages, messages from God. Uh, to people. Now, whether they did or whether this was uh, sort of a mechanism uh, or a literary device, we don't know. But I suspect in a way that uh, this is true. Angels did come. The whole book of Tobin is about how an angel accompanied uh, Tobias on his journey. And then you have angels throughout the Old Testament and into the first part of the New Testament. Look at how the angels talked to both Mary and Joseph 
and the one talking to Mary was also Gabriel, the same one. So angels were uh, a form of, or a way that God got messages uh, to human beings. Any other questions? Yes, yes, definitely. Spiritually dead. Uh, yeah, Jose just brought up a, a point of comparison about being spiritually dead, as I mentioned earlier, uh, talking about the Nazis who killed millions of people. Now, we shouldn't say that the Nazis killed millions of Jews because there were many others along with those same people, so it wasn't only Jews that they killed. All right? Uh, when we say that, we're ignoring uh, many other uh, Catholic priests, uh, nuns, anybody that was opposed to the regime of Hitler. So you got to be a little careful there. I, I know that that's a common phrase, but uh, it excludes uh, many others. The Jewish people say that uh, Hitler and his regime killed six million Jews. Uh, we don't know how accurate that is, uh, possibly so, uh, but how many others were also in that uh, Holocaust, you might say. Okay. Well, we have no way of, we have no way of knowing. But no way of knowing. And it's horrible, but that's life. Okay. Any other questions? Yes, Fiona? Yeah, Fiona's comment really is, it's a story of human life where mankind starts out well, is often snagged by the devil into uh, sin, but in the long run it is God who is constantly trying to bring him back and holds out because God is always in control. But Remember, even though God is always in control, it doesn't mean a controlling force. Big difference. God is always in control, but he has given us free will to accept his guidance and direction. And it is only when we reject or neglect his guiding direction that we fall in the sin. Okay. And <clears throat> he is always there waiting to welcome us back. But if we continue on to neglect or reject God, then we condemn ourselves. He doesn't condemn anyone. And that's the misfortune that many people overlook. 